0: Hello, everybody. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court made it illegal for colleges to use affirmative action for admissions. This was a tremendous blow for those of us who understand the value of diversity. For this reason, I was eager to meet today's guest, Mena Pratt, who is Vice President for Strategic Affairs and Diversity at Virginia Tech. What does she think about the Supreme Court decision? How is her college affected? Since diversity is in her job title, what does it mean for her? Here is Mayna to tell us about the effect of the decision on her work. I will also ask her about her life and what it takes to be a leader. Hello, everybody. I'm about jumping over with joy here about this conversation we're about to have. Okay. Hello, hello, Mena. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Uh, to those of you who are watching, I met Mina because we are sharing, we are now using the same publisher for our forthcoming books. Hers is coming out in April. Mine and my co-author's book is coming out in July. The focus obviously is going to be on Mena and what she has done, the, the serious work she's done has led her to get multiple national awards, write four books, head up a major senior VP no, at Virginia Tech. So we have quite an accomplished woman here with a lot of things to say. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Okay. So, first question has to be What is inclusive VT? And how do you feel about the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action? And how does that affect your work, if at all?
1: Yeah, no, thank you for that. So I've been at Virginia Tech for seven years and I serve as a vice president for strategic affairs and diversity. So I'm essentially the chief diversity officer and the chief strategy officer. So I get to marry those two ways of thinking. Inclusive ET is the institutional and individual commitment to ut prosum, which is our motto. So our motto at Virginia Tech is ut prosum that I may serve. So it's this commitment to service in the spirit of community, diversity, and excellence. And so as an institution, when we say that we're committed to Inclusive ET, we're committed to diversity in service of our motto and our mission. And so we have created, yeah, yeah it's it's been an amazing connection to connect that motto to. Whoa, yeah. yeah, I'm impressed. Okay, go ahead. So that's allowed us to create a structure and Inclusive ET has four pillars. And the first one, and I would say the most important pillar is sustainable institutional transformation. And so we think about structures and strategies and policies and procedures and processes to ensure the sustainability of diversity. So when the Supreme Court ruling came out, obviously it will affect every sort of elite higher ed institution. It won't affect all sort of open access institutions, but institutions that are a bit more competitive and their admissions processes are going to be affected. However, there the Supreme Court didn't close the door, right? There, there was a window that was open in the decision that said to the extent that you're going to talk about race in terms of your background, your experiences, your skills, your expertise, you can say that in an essay question. And so I think that opportunity for institutions is what is your essay question going to be? What are you going to ask students in terms of their experiences and backgrounds to gain a sense of their commitment to diversity, their understanding of their own identity? So even white students, for example, could talk about their identity as a white student and how they understand their whiteness as could Asian students, Latinx students, native students, black students. And so I'm curious as to what this new landscape will be, how creative institutions will be. We have a black college institute at Virginia Tech that focuses on the African-American experience. It's open to all students, it's a summer program, but there are many pre-college programs like that for high school students and you can leverage those pipeline programs and pre-college programs. So I I still think there's a lot of, I'm an optimist. (laughs) So I still think there's a lot of opportunity to continue to do good work.
0: Okay, so let's back up. Did y'all, are y'all planning on changing your essay questions?
1: Yes, we have. We actually have changed our essay question. We have a set of principles of community at Virginia Tech that came out of a student um, protest about now maybe 10, 15 years ago. And as a result of that protest, as an institution, we adopted a set of principles that affirm the right of different voices, affirm the value of diversity, freedom of speech, our commitment to non-discrimination. And so we've asked students in our new essay question to speak to their understanding of the principles of community. So it'll give us a sense of just students' understanding of our value as an institution and how they see themselves fitting into a core set of values that's very important to us as an institution. So we have changed that essay question. Okay, and it does
0: not explicitly ask about race, any kind of identity? No. Okay, but if you want to respond about how you how you see a uh, service, then that's mm-hmm. when you get to interject it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, well,
0: that works, all right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You said the Supreme Court decision keeps the door open because people, uh, people can talk about their experiences.
1: Yes. What did it close? Well, it closed the explicit use of tracking racial identity in the decision process. For many institutions, race was one of many factors. So there was still the academic profile. There was still maybe a geographic profile. There was still sort of academic readiness. There was still, you know, sort of goals based on major or interest area, extracurricular activities. There was a range of factors most institutions were using already, but race was one of those factors. And now it can no longer be a factor, explicit factor in deciding the makeup of a class. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I did a blog post
0: about that. It was, mm-hmm. it, it knocked me, it not, I was surprised. It knocked me off my wings when I when it happened. But looking at you now and mm-hmm. the optimism that you say you have and the curiosity, I love that you're evoking curiosity to say, okay, now what? As
1: opposed mm-hmm. to cursing the past. And so (laughs) you, exactly. Well, you know, you mentioned writing a blog post. I wrote a blog post as well. And what I reflected on in my blog post is the Baki decision that came out in 1976 or so 74. And I remember my parents kept talking about Baki, Baki, Baki. And I'm like, what is, who is, is that a disease? Like what, what is that? And how upset they were And so to think about all the time that has passed now, we're sort of gone back to, you know, limiting our commitment as a country to creating doors for populations that have been marginalized and disenfranchised in society. Yeah. Okay,
0: so I'm going, let's let's connect this with you. Tell
1: us about growing up. How did you how did you come into this work? I came into this work because of my parents. So both of my parents um, had very difficult journeys as African, African-Americans. My father was born in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Wow. And he, he never became an American citizen. So he was always a Sierra Leone citizen. Okay. Proudly. And, my, proudly. Very Proudly and my mother, um, her grandmother was enslaved. So she grew up in poor, she, they were sharecroppers, she grew up picking cotton, sort of rural Texas. But both of them end up getting PhDs. No so people. my father, yes, my father got his PhD in nuclear physics from Carnegie Mellon University. Nuclear physics, okay. In the 1960s. Whoa, okay. OK. And my mother got her Ph.D. in social work from the University of Pittsburgh in huh? the 1960s. OK. OK. So both of them met, married, became faculty members. My father's career was sabotaged by racism three years into his teaching career. They terminated his contract. So he never taught, did research in physics again. My mother. Hang on a minute. because <laughs> I, can, I can see somebody. I can see people questioning you.
0: How do you know that it was terminated by racism?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. So there was a box of um, file folders that my mother showed me many years after my father had passed and said, "This, is, these are all the documents of his lawsuit against the university for racism. And one of the documents was a letter from his attorney to the university that said the level of racism experienced by this man from the date of his appointment to his termination is unimaginable. And it just sort of documented, you know, not giving publicity over his publications, sort of racist comments and meetings, just a litany of experiences that he had had since he was hired. Okay, yeah.
0: well,
1: that that's convincing. Okay. It now, was. <laughs> yeah. Now to your mother. So, uh, my mother was successful in her academic career. She became a full professor at a time when Black women were less than 1% of all full professors. So, I grew up in this household of academics who were significantly impacted by racism, by sexism, um, by um, discrimination in America. So I heard their life stories, I heard their journeys, and that influenced me to understand more about the experiences of African Americans in the United States and to engage in work to support my people. Okay. So you've always been aware
0: of race. That's always. Always. Okay. Yeah, for most most black of us, but I don't remember ever race not being a topic. So exactly. yeah, okay. So But I got to go back to your father. So he was fired.
1: Yes. What did he do? Did he? Okay. So what he did is he decided that he was going to raise his children to be independent of the system. So I grew up hearing the word the system and his vision was that he would teach my brother and I piano, violin, and tennis. We would have piano private piano, violin lessons, and he would be our tennis coach, like Venus and Serena. I was thinking King Richard. Okay. Yeah, exactly. He was our tennis coach, and that was his vision, is that we would be independent from the system by these skills. So he, my brother is a world-renowned musician, and Pratt. He won the first, he was the first African-American to win the Namburg International Piano Competition. And I had a tennis career before I went to college. So that's what my father's vision was. Okay, so you have
0: strong, okay, you have
1: strong heritage yeah.
0: stuff in you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, mm-hmm. It can't, yes, and it's so hard to explain that. It's so yes. hard to explain that, but you, you did it you I mean i I get it. I'm just hoping people hearing this can get what you just said
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay, so do you psychologically consider yourself in the system now? oh
1: <laughs> that's a great question. um, yes, I am in the system okay but but I um. There's a quote that says, you know, will the oppressor's tools, you know, by Audre Lord dismantle the master's house. Can you use the oppressor's tools to dismantle the oppressor's house? And I think it's a little bit of both. I think you've got to know what it means to be an insider, to, to be on the inside. I mean, I'm the vice president of a major research institution. So I, I'm, I'm an insider, but I'm also the only black woman in leadership position there so I'm also an outsider. So I'm an insider and outsider and my background and training so I have a law degree and a PhD in sociology. So I think in legal sociological terms about systems and structures. And so I feel like I bring an outsider lens to my insider status. And in that I'm straddling the worlds. Um and I, I try to use my scholarship to engage in outsider activist work.
0: <laughs> this is so cool. This is so cool because I went from outside community organizer to insider, university professor, uh, a head of a, a, a nonprofit. So I did both. Also okay, psychologically, I never felt like an insider, but I did aspire for and was treated like I was an insider.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what kept me, and I'm I'm saying this, so I want to ask you, what kept me from being hooked was I was always ready to walk away. Mm. So let me rephrase my question. You're saying that you are an insider with an outsider lens. I'll tell you that it's you. Well, no, I don't even know if I can say this. The very definition of an outsider on the inside is you.
1: Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm.
0: Couldn't, I couldn't imagine a more prototype, a more valid prototype than you as an outsider who's on the inside, able to use the master's tools. Or liberation so mm-hmm. I see I, I see that's what you stand for
1: yeah. it, well I, I would say that I have been obedient to the whisper of the spirit ah okay so I was at Vanderbilt for nine years for eight years and all of a sudden I heard it it's like what am I doing what am I doing in this role And I was the assistant secretary of the university. So I was in charge of eight governance committees, a 40 member board. I was a construction attorney. I negotiated $500 million worth of construction contracts for the university, and I was a compliance officer. So all the legal compliance issues I was managing. I did that for eight years, but I was teaching. I was teaching at Fisk University on the side. I was teaching at American Baptist College through the prisons. And I knew I had a passion for more academic type work, right. but not just the legal compliance work. Yeah. And I just heard it. My my spirit felt restless. And so, and my mother was still alive at the time. She, my father had died. She moved to Nashville where I was working at Vanderbilt. And then she moved back to Illinois. And so I, she was the only surviving grandparent. So we decided that we would move to Illinois to be closer to her. Now the job I took at Illinois at the time was a $30,000 salary cut. It was reporting three levels lower in the organization. It, so I had this very senior position at Vanderbilt. At Illinois, I did not have that senior position, but I was 45 minutes away from my mother, okay? And we had a wonderful time. She, We were together for about six years before she passed, okay? But I worked my way up at Illinois, okay? So I worked my way up from an associate director of an affirmative action office to being the associate chancellor and associate provost at Illinois. But more importantly, I became a tenured faculty member. So I started, right, I started a non-traditional path of writing, publishing, and teaching. And at some point, various faculty folks said, you have the dossier of a tenured faculty member, let's take you through the tenure process. So that, it wasn't that I didn't feel committed to Vanderbilt, I just heard the whisper, okay, and the same thing happened at Illinois. Nine years, leading, tenured, so I had decided I'm just going to stay at Illinois, I'm going to become a full professor, continue doing this work, and I heard the whisper. Was said Virginia Tech, and I said, what, (laughs) where, (laughs) why, and then I was obedient, so I have been at Virginia Tech seven years.
0: Okay, so I have two avenues I want to pursue based on what you just said. One is I want to talk about the whisper, Mm -hmm. and second then, I want you to talk about what you have, that has enabled you to rise. You're now describing three different institutions where you rose, okay? Mm -hmm. But let's do the whisper first because I think that bleeds into the second. What does the whisper sound, feel like, just make it as vivid as possible? Because I suspect, let me explain what I'm doing. I suspect there are people out there who feel it and ignore it.
1: Yes. I would say the Whisper is a restlessness of the spirit. It's it's attention. You start to feel attention, a push and a pull. Should I questioning? It's like a questioning energy. It's a type of energy. And I believe in spiritual practices. I'm a very spiritual person. I wouldn't say religious, but I'm a deeply spiritual person. And that allows me to have a sensitivity towards my own energy my own emotions, my own feelings. And I've journaled for 45 years. <laughs> so I'm like journaling, I'm unhappy. Like I'm feeling, you know, some mixed feelings here. What What are these feelings that I'm feeling? So I'm writing my thoughts and feelings and then I'm reading them. And so I'm understanding who I am, what I'm thinking about, what I'm feeling. And then I think it's important to be, I call it obedient to the spirit. So if the spirit... Leads me and is sort of showing me something I feel I need to pay attention. But so I believe most people get messages. So they get sense, they yeah. they consent, right? And some of us choose not to be obedient to the spirit. And then people look back on their lives with regret. Like I wish I had. I should have. And I want to live my life so I have no regrets. That's what I just personally want. I don't want to have regrets. I'd rather you be
0: mad at me than I'm mad at you because I'm going to do, I'm not going to have regrets about how I feel about you. No, I'm not going to have regrets.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's my commitment to myself. I'm going to try to live my life in a way that I don't have any regrets.
0: Okay. That's very clear. Okay. And I love it, as you can probably tell. Okay. So now... I just got some new coaching clients, and every one of them want to know how to rise. You mm-hmm. have risen in three organizations, as I'm hearing you. That I know that you you've just mentioned in this conversation, including the last one. I mean, not Virginia, Chicago, where you started off non tenured associate, and then you just and then uh and, I then went on up. I should use the words. You just went on up. Now, here you are managing to combine chief diversity officer, chief diversity officer with Chief (laughs) chief strategic officer. That's a hell of a combination. Yes. You had to be recognized for multiple talents. So think of some... 30 year old who's trying to figure out how to rise and what they what what they need to do okay <laughs> and you want i want to say the first which is pay attention to this when the spirit talks pay attention that's your first statement yeah okay so build on that
1: My experience has been, it's a combination of two important factors. It's really important to understand the people in an organization. Where does power sit? Where does influence sit? And it's not always the person with the most senior title. So a lot of times it's maybe a middle management level, Um, your HR, business, IT, finance that that level is very important in an organization administrative assistants are extremely important in an organization very important <laughs> right <laughs> i mean they facilitate access or they eliminate access i'm amazed
0: how many people don't get that right
1: right they share information or they don't and so building relationships at all levels of an organization is a really important strategy. The other important strategy is to understand the culture of an organization. How it works. Some organizations work the culture is you just find that person who will lobby for you. Right? It's 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 it's, it's that relationship you're 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 leveraging. Your relationship with individuals because that's how that organization works. A lot of organizations work, with, it's networking. People call it networking. Some organizations are very compliance driven, very results driven. It's like we need to see the results. So, our ability as women, as people of color, from marginalized groups in particular, we don't always do a good job of selling our accomplishments. Like, what have you done? How how do you document that? How do you tell your story? And your ev- annual evaluation and these places and spaces where you have the opportunity to say, I've done this. I actually wrote the strategic plan that I provided to so-and-so. <laughs> um, so being able to, without appearing arrogant, put forth, your accomplishments and achievements so that the you're you're not invisible that the institution can see you so I, I think those are important things is the relationship with people and then understanding the culture where you're sensitive to how are people rising in the organization? Is it because of their networking? Is it because of their accomplishments or is it a combination of the two? And often it is a combination of the two. You've got to show achievements and accomplishments and you also have to be liked <laughs> for lack of a better Thank you People for just say saying
0: that so life. clearly. Thank you for just saying that. Yes. Yes. People say, I'm me and I'm doing my job and I'm doing a good job. And I,
1: if you don't like me, tough. And you're saying you say that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I learned this a lot, so I was a lawyer. I mean, I guess I am a lawyer, but I was a lawyer at a a corporate law firm. And you had to socialize, I was the only black woman lawyer, but I had to learn to socialize with my white male colleagues, partners. So going to dinners, going to bars and hanging out, even though that wasn't me in any way. But if I was going to be seen, noticed, valued, it couldn't just be that I sat in my office and I was there for 12 hours. I also needed to be part of that social community network. So I
0: get the feeling you're more extroverted than introverted. Am I right about that? Oh, no, I'm very much an introvert, but I, I can turn it on when Okay that's what I was going to ask you. Okay so if you are an introvert you do deliberately turn it on.
1: Oh yes, I know when I have to show up. And you have to show up a certain way and interact and engage and I can do that. But if I had a preference, I'm like cool sitting at home writing, watching Hallmark, talking on the phone to my friends. I'm you know, I'm I'm okay in quiet spaces. But if I need to be in public spaces and engage. I can do that. And, and it took time to learn that. That wasn't natural for me.
0: And you took on learning
1: it. Learning yes. it was a deliberate goal. It was. I saw that it was important at the law firm. And I have had people sort of, you know, time to time share, well, Mena, why are you coming? Why are you not coming to the social event? You, you got to come out more. Just come out more and so you know just quiet ways and then you know that you've got to start showing up
0: and so you were willing to do that
1: i was willing to do that
0: now in all of these places you've been and here's another question i frequently get what do you do when the inevitable inadvertent racist or sexist comment gets made
1: um it depends it depends. Sometimes it's the conversation. Um, did you, did you say that? Just, did you say that? Oh, okay. And that, that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Can we talk about that? So I just gently try to have a conversation about it. Well, not, on the spot. On the spot. Yeah. So you don't let it slide. It's not all the time. Sometimes I do. Right. Not every because I can't challenge every. Right. But some are and sometimes I don't have the right words. And what I've learned to say is I'll just say, excuse me, I feel some kind of way. So I'll just say that (laughs) I feel some kind of way. I might not always get all my words right, but I can say that. So I will say it in a meeting if I need to. Some dynamic is happening that I know isn't right. I'll just say, excuse me, I, I feel some kind of way.
0: I was just talking with someone yesterday and her words are, excuse me. I lost focus. Wait a minute. I just lost focus.
1: Okay. So I'd like that. I felt some kind of way. I uh-huh. love that. huh. I feel some kind of way. And um, sometimes I'll pull the person aside after a meeting and I'll say, Hey, can we just chat for a minute? And I'll say in the meeting, this dynamic happened. Can you help me understand? Because I'm, It made me feel this way personally. And maybe you didn't know, maybe you didn't understand, but I I, I wanted to have a conversation. So it doesn't become, because these are colleagues. I wouldn't say they're all friends, but they're colleagues. And we need to work together. And my work is in this space. And I don't want, what I learned a long time ago, many years ago, is if I don't speak up, then I carry that incident into my home. <laughs> I, was and thinking, then I uh, yes right and then I'm thinking about it through the night or I'm talking to a girlfriend about it and I don't want to do that I want to leave the thing outside my home if I can so if I can address it with the person then it's done and if not I need to just let that go I don't need to you know ruminate about it I just okay move on OK,
0: so as you're saying that, I'm imagining I'm remembering one guy at a workshop who said, what do I do with all of my anger and upset when this happens? You're saying let it go, but telling somebody who's angry and upset to let it go, they they need a little bit more guidance than that.
1: Well, it's it's both. You don't always let it go. So sometimes you and it might not be that day. But you still might reach out to that colleague. Hey, let's have coffee. Let's have tea. Let's just chat, because it might have been unconscious, not intentional. So this, so let,
0: so go into action. That's what I call it. Go into action rather than sitting there, unable to do anything. Unable to all, all you're doing is being stuck with your feelings.
1: Right, but I think there's the action can take multiple forms. Okay, so the action can take calling up the colleague, calling the colleague out or calling the colleague in, as some people like to say, call them okay. in instead of call them okay. out. Okay. You can say, go for a walk, go for a walk in nature. It it just shifts your mind, go, you know, find your hobby, fully engage in whatever that hobby is. And it shifts your mind. So then that dynamic is not as strong that now you're just sitting around angry because you've released the anger in different ways. i mean, going walk around the block and do miracles for a mindset. And that's been my experience at least maybe. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's really true. Okay. <laughs> really true. Yeah. So you don't hold it in, you don't sit around with it. You engage in, and it's interesting. There's a woman who, um, I run this national conference. It's called the Faculty Women of Color in the Academy National Conference. We have run it for 12 years. And the woman, there's a woman who's one of our yoga instructors for the conference. And she will say, punch it out. Just punch it out. You know, just just get it out. And she will talk about different ways of managing that energy in our body. So we release it. We don't hold on because that makes us ill. So we don't hold on to it. We find ways of getting it out that are healthy.
0: That's wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to go to my questions here. I am I am blown away by the Inclusive ET. What makes it successful?
1: Um, what makes Inclusive ET successful are several core factors. The very first and most important one is the commitment of the president. So our president has been extraordinarily committed from day one. So when I interviewed, he and I had dinner at the president's house, and it was just he and I sitting for about two hours talking about his commitment to diversity. He has not only, his commitment has been demonstrated by his investment of resources. So I started our office for inclusion and diversity with two other people. It was a very small office. So you our mean team. you built that thing? Yes, I, I built it. <laughs> oh, my Word. Okay, go ahead. So you started with two
0: people. Well, now it's I'm getting, almost wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm getting goosebumps here. <laughs> okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, so now it's almost 40 people.
0: I, I saw your organization chart.
1: Yes. Okay, that's real. So it's a it's president's commitment is the first thing. The second thing is resources. It's money. It's lines, it's money for programs, it's money for salaries, it's money to change the culture of an institution. So there's a diversity education unit, which is fabulous. It's just an amazing unit that does just transformational programming. There's a faculty diversity unit, there's a student diversity unit, there are community and cultural centers, there's a unit to support coaching for underrepresented, underserved students. So there's structures in place. There's a diversity officer in every college now. So every college at Virginia Tech has a diversity officer. So it's leadership commitment, so it's the president, but obviously the provost, the deans have to be committed. It's resources, and then it's a structure and clarity of vision. That's it. Yeah, (laughs) yes. I
0: see your I see your strategic focus coming out, Indeed. leadership leadership resources structure, yes, and then the interpersonal culture still stuff comes last. Yeah. Yes.
1: Okay.
0: Explain explain the difference between what high commitment looks like, and performative commitment where I'm voicing it, but We can feel, no, it's not real.
1: Okay. People criticize performative commitment, but I actually value the performance because there's some value there. So I think on a continuum, you have nothing. You have no commitment. Thank you. Okay, so that's on one end of the spectrum. Then you have the performance where they're at least trying because it's not the easiest thing to even verbalize what the commitment, and I don't think a lot of people even do the performance well. So you have the performative commitment, and then you have the actualized and operational commitment. Right. Okay. So on that continuum, that operationalized commitment is resources. So when you look at a lot of diversity offices, there's one person. It's like an office of one. It's A staff position, maybe it's an advisory position to the president. It's not a line position where they have resources and budget that they can manage and have the flexibility to to um, operationalize a vision, to create and operationalize the vision. Okay, the performative allows you to say what your vision is. Oh, we envision an institution that's diverse, that's inclusive, where everybody can thrive. So you need the performative (laughs) words. But to operationalize that performance, you need resources. And I think that's the main difference is resources. Okay. You have people and you have programs and you can begin to embed the performance and the value throughout the organization. All right. <laughs> okay. So now let's go to the, the
0: low or zero. Okay. What is it that they don't know? But what they say is everybody is equal. We don't need, we don't have those kind of problems. There's no need to focus on that. What is it? What is it that they don't know and that they could ask to find out if their assumptions that everything is hunky-dory is
1: accurate? I I believe they know it's not hunky-dory. They just don't want to do the deep work of talking about it and trying to fix it. Because it's not easy to fix whether, at whatever institution, your unhappy population, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's first-generation students, whether it's your international students, I believe most institutions have a sense that there's some group of people that are unhappy there for, for whatever reason. And the work of dealing with their unhappiness just they don't want to do it. So it's easy to overlook them and to marginalize. Oh, that's just a small group of people. We're we're all fine in university of love or whatever. You know, we're all we're all good here. We're all, you know, making it through. We we don't need to spend our resources with this little group of unhappy people. And what shifts the conversation is when that little group of unhappy people forms enough of a coalition to protest. Yes. Right? Right. So the minute you have student, I mean, most changes on college campuses in our history in America has been because of student protests. So
0: how transferable is what you've said to corporations or nonprofits as far as you know?
1: Well, you still need the commitment of leadership. That's the CEO, mm-hmm. right? CEO, COO, the board. That's right. another important piece at Virginia Tech. The board has been extraordinarily committed. So the board level, the the CEO level for a corporation, you still need the investment of resources, in a corporation, you need clarity of vision. What are we trying to do here? What is our brand? How connected to a diverse consumer base does our brand need to be? What does our messaging need to be? How diverse a talent pool do we want? Do we really value a diverse workforce? If we do, where are we going to, what efforts are we going to put into place to recruit a a diverse community? I,
0: I want to stop right here on: Do we really value a diverse workplace? Why would a company want that? I, I I'm I'm thinking of a couple of companies who say they wanted, but if I think about it, I am not sure.
1: Right. I mean, so the research on diversity will say companies and organizations that are more diverse have higher profits, higher returns, are more successful financially, right. right? And the bottom line, right? More creative inventions, right? But it takes more time. Okay. And there's more friction with diverse teams because you got all these different viewpoints, all these different cultures that you have to navigate and figure out. So from an expediency standpoint, it's like, hey, let's just hire a bunch of people that look like us. It's just going to, we're all going to think the same. It's going to be easier. We're not going to have a bunch of controversy. We're going to be able to execute. So you have to have a particular leader that's sensitive to the benefits and challenges of diverse teams, knowing that the outcome will benefit and advance the mission more than a non-diverse team. But it's a leader. It's many types of leaders throughout an organization who can manage diverse teams. Okay. Because the minute you bring in a woman, let's just, for example, the minute you bring into a a woman into an all male team, things have to change. <laughs> right. It's just like, it's, like it's going things have to change. So if you were going to an all male golf course to, you know, hang out, well, can not she go? Well, no, maybe you need to go, you know, somewhere else you're going to the cigar bar and you know maybe she can't and maybe others didn't want to go either but they always went so the minute you bring in one level of diversity you bring in a person with a disability like oh well now this uh we everything has to be we thought because of this person that's people's mindsets and so when you bring in diversity things change
0: right and you have to be the. You have to know that the reward equals the pain of the change.
1: Exceeds the pain. <laughs> Say that again. It, the reward has to exceed the pain. Ex- yes, exceed the pain. That's what I'm. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's talk about your scholarship. Okay. Uh, you have a recent book, and I'm going to flash it. I'm going to share screen and just show it. Do you want to talk about your book first or your scholarship altogether and then culminate with the book? How do you want to go in? I, I can
1: talk about the book. Okay. I can talk about the we We'll go straight book. to the book. Okay.
0: Here she is.
1: Here she is. <laughs> so Congratulations. black Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> black Wild Girl. A Writer's Journey to Take Back Her Superpower. So that's a picture of me about 30 years ago. And the book is coming out in April with She Writes Press. And this book is based on 45 years of journals. So when I was eight years old, I wrote my first journal entry. It's, it's from your journals. Yes. Okay. For 45 years, I have journaled. Okay. And so about three years ago, three or four years ago, I took all of these journals and I went on a three-week retreat and I began transcribing the journal entries to form a book. So it's a a book about you. Yeah, it's a book about me. (laughs) It's a book about my life journey as a Black girl becoming a Black woman in America. And my life experiences, the lessons I learned, and this sort of the subtitle is A Writer's Journey to Take Back Her Superpower. So in the book, I talk about growing up with my parents and how I sort of lost my mojo as a little girl. And I spent my life trying to recapture that sort of feisty energy that I think a lot of little black girls have, that sometimes our little superpower gets shut down as parents are trying to help us navigate what it means to be black in America. Okay. Uh, how did it, how did it get shut down? Uh-oh, you might have to read the book for that. <laughs> no, listen, you can do go high level. You don't have to go so high level, high level is what I shared earlier about my father. So my father was my tennis coach. My father had this very complicated life experience and he was trying to figure out how do I shift shift and shape my children to navigate the system. And in his mindset, there's there's sacrifices in that journey. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well I can tell you from looking
0: at you and talking with you, whatever mojo you might have lost along <laughs> the way, you have more than regained. Oh, thank it was operating
1: and beaming out of you. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. I think what's interesting with the book, so the book is on my life journey. Right. But the book that I wrote before that is called A Black Woman's Journey from Cotton Picking to College Professor, Lessons About Race, Class, and Gender in America. And that's my mother's story. So it's her life journey from growing up in rural Texas, being a sharecropper, picking cotton to getting four degrees and becoming a full professor. And so in writing my journey, and I also wrote her journey, so it's she had been writing some autobiographical elements. So she had been trying to write her own journey. And when she died, she said, I need you to finish a book about my life. Uh So I had to gather the little pieces of paper where she had written memories and take her writing and shape it into an autobiography bi- biography of her life. But in writing my life, there are many parallels with our journeys. Points of intersection, points of connection, points of divergence. And so I think it's interesting to read both books together when our the book comes out in April, just to see two Black women's journeys, different generations, um, and those. Parallels of Black girlhood to womanhood in America. Give us one parallel. A difficult parallel, but we both experienced sexual abuse. Both okay. of us. Mm-hmm. And, and was the recovery process the same? Um, I don't know much about her recovery process, but I know it affected her throughout her life because she told me about it when she was dying. So it it was a secret that she had sort of carried her life throughout her life. And looking back, I can see she was trying to protect me from that experience. Um, So I I think that that was one parallel. I, I think another important parallel in our journeys was a commitment to education. So I have five degrees, she has four. We were both sort of just committed to getting these keys, seeing degrees as keys to open doors for us. Yeah.
0: They they wanted you to have, you and your brother to have, and they succeeded.
1: And they succeeded, yes.
0: And the parallel I'm drawing is what you just said about leadership and resources. Think of all the children that did, who were sharecropping right along with your mother. Yes, yes. Who are sharecropping still.
1: You're exactly right.
0: What was the difference?
1: Well, my mother would say that she had a particular determination, that she was just determined that that was not gonna be her life. So she was only one in her family to finish college. And she just remembers as a young girl, it's like, this is not going to be my life. And I, and I think people who rise above their circumstances have a certain mindset, just like a resilience, a persistence, a fierce commitment to themselves that allows them, no matter what the obstacle, to continue to persist. So I think there's just a mindset because she, you know, yes, different people along the way did small things to open a little door. But a lot of times we're not aware that the door has opened or we're not willing to walk through the door. Right. right? But she, she had that sort of steadfast, persistent determination.
0: And that's what it boils down to. Just, uh, I interviewed a friend of mine on the podcast and she said, you haven't failed until you quit.
1: Oh. Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Yeah, so your mother, what you're saying is your mother, your father, and now you and your brothers are kept going. You just kept going.
1: Exactly. Exactly. No matter what. No matter
0: what. Just keep going.
1: Absolutely. Well, me that this has been a
0: shared delight.
1: Thank you.
0: I, I I am so honored to have met you and for you to be here. Would you leave people listening, watching with any one thing you would want to make sure to emphasize or for people to know?
1: Well, what I try to do is every Sunday morning, I play the piano and I try to post it on social media, just something encouraging. So I would encourage folks to just follow me on social media Uh or my website. Okay. Give Give us the information. So the website is www.menapratt.com uh-huh. is my website. And you can link to my Facebook. It's just my name, Menna Pratt, on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Sunday morning, what time? Oh, it's usually around seven, six, seven in the morning, but it's it's just a video or a reel that you can follow me and see that. All right. Well, <laughs> thank some you. Some good some good energy out in the world. Yes.
0: So you, you spread in, you just spread the energy. You, 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 you keep it, you pay it forward. I try to. Mana is a force of nature. The depth of her understanding and skill as a leader is mind blowing. I have five takeaways. One, yes, the Supreme Court ended affirmative action, but all is not lost her college found a way to get the information they are seeking if the student wants to provide it. What impresses me the most is that she is looking for it with curiosity to see what happens when the new essay questions come in. Two, she has learned to treat as challenges what other people call setbacks. She calls herself an optimist. I thoroughly believe this optimism is what gives her the resilience she needs to drive results. Three, she is acutely aware she is rising on the back of her parents and grandparents. This is one of the characteristics of most black people I know. We don't claim to have done it all by ourselves. We know others paved the way. Four, our recipe to make diversity work in an organization is right on point. It takes committed leadership who is willing to provide the resources. With the resources, you can invest in a supportive structure. Only with a committed leadership, resources, and structure can you then create a diverse and inclusive climate. Number five. Her advice to rising leaders is right on point. Pay attention. If you experience a restlessness as she calls it, if it's leading you toward a different direction, understand the structure of the organization, how power is used and the people. You will not emerge as a leader if people don't like you. It's not enough. To just do your job, face this.